You're listening to a sermon given by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, June 14, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Uh, open them up to Matthew chapter 7, and while you're doing that, I'll tell you a little story. Um, back when I was in high school, my, my senior year of high school, I took a, a flight to California to visit a college. It had been a dream come true to possibly go to a particular school in California. And so I hopped on the plane to fly across the country to go see this school. And, and what's unique about the flight is I, I took a, a little known outfit in the day. This is back in the day when you still had to schedule your flights through schedule books and things like that. It was a little known outfit in Atlanta called Southwest Airlines. Uh, Southwest was not then what it is now, and one of the things that Southwest was popular for back then was not just the way they gave you cards that you stood in line to get your seats to come into the plane, but once you got in the plane, you didn't really know what was going to happen with the flight attendants. Some of them would tell jokes. They would be stand-up comics. Some would do magic. Uh, There were times when you could fly on Southwest Airlines, and they'd come with the baskets of chips and snacks, and they'd toss them to you, and you'd have to catch them, and it was just this interactive thing, and so I got on the flight that day, and I didn't know what was going to happen, but everything seemed to be going according to normal custom. The flight attendant got on the microphone and began the most ignored speech in American life, the the safety speech on the airplane. And they said, get out your safety card, follow along with me, and they did the whole spiel. But then something happened that none of us were expecting. When the flight attendant finished the story, he said, everybody who has their card, lift them up in the air. I looked around, and I didn't do it. People around me didn't do it. And he said, congratulations. Each of you is receiving a free round-trip voucher on Southwest Airlines anywhere Southwest flies. And there were a lot of audible, like, (gasps) and there were four very distinct cheers. Because four people actually lifted up their card. Now, all around me were professional travelers making this cross-country flight. People who spent their life on airplanes. They could probably tell you every safety speech from every major airline. They knew the order, what they were going to say. Some of them probably even knew regional pilots that flew some of those flights. They knew the airplane they were on, the type of plane they were on. They knew how to get the seats based on the type of plane. They were professional travelers. And within about 30 seconds, a little ding, ding, ding for the flight attendant came on. And they started to complain. But what about me? What about me? And I heard this distinctly, two rows in front of me. I'm glad that you understand the safety procedures on Southwest Airlines, sir. But you didn't listen and do what I said. So you don't get the free ticket. I kid you not to this day. I get on every single airplane. Whether I have headphones on or not, I'll take one out of my ear. And I will listen and I will watch and I will have the card in my hand. Just in case anything like that ever happens again in my life. This morning, in our our parable for the day, Jesus is dealing with listening and obeying. And the thing that we've got to get clear in our head is that the ramifications that Jesus is talking about are far more significant for our life than a a free airline ticket. Last week, as we began our, our journey through some of the parables of Jesus, we considered the question, have we as a church settled for something less than Jesus died for? when he called us to be salt in the places where he has sent us. And this morning, in the bigger sense, I want us to consider, have we as his people deceived ourselves into building our life on a foundation that won't last? And to answer that question and try to understand a bit of its present day reality for us, we're going to have to zoom in there on Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. But I understand when we get to the parables, especially the one we're looking at this morning, Many of us are are familiar with the story. You sang songs about it maybe in Sunday school. If you grew up in church, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably familiar with the story through popular culture and the way that it's used. And so less familiarity breed disinterest for us. I, I want us to feel. I want us to not just hear, but to feel the intention Jesus had for this story. So rather than taking the direct route to these verses, we're going to take the scenic route. We're going to take Route 66 through the Sermon on the Mount to get to this moment in this time that Jesus was speaking because this parable is is literally the concluding words to the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you might remember, we we, we spoke about it briefly last week, the the Sermon on the Mount is is Jesus' kingdom manifesto to his people. 
It's his initial teaching on on what it means to belong to God's kingdom, what it means for his disciples to live for God's king. It began back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Let me just set the scene for you. It it won't come up, so don't just listen to me. It it started in chapter 5, verse 1, when, when Jesus recognized the crowds that were pressing in on him, and so he literally got away from them. He went away from them and sat up on a hillside and, and he had his disciples come to him and they sat with him and, and it was there on top of that hillside that Jesus began to teach. and He began to teach his disciples, those who had committed themselves to following him. And as he begins to teach, he starts to talk about kingdom living, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, what it looks like to live for him as king, but... By the time we get to the end of the sermon, we'll see in our verses this morning, the crowds were responding to Jesus. Those crowds that Jesus had slipped away from, and we don't know the intention Jesus had behind going to the hillside. Was he just wanting to get away and have some quiet time to himself? Was he just wanting to get away and be with his close disciples? Did he just want to make space for more people to come? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But by the time he gets to the end of the sermon, the crowds have gathered. It's not just the disciples. The 12 were there, the larger number that we learn about, the 70 and even the hundreds who were following Jesus at this time were joined by onlookers, those who were really curious about this man they had been hearing about. Maybe they had heard stories about him at this point. The the curious and the onlookers had joined to listen to Jesus teach about the kingdom. And the message that Jesus had for the disciples who gathered and the onlookers who joined was the same. It was the same for each of them. And it's the same for us here this morning. And let me just give you a little preacher insight on the sermon so that you can kind of understand the intent and the the sense behind it. This was a very long sermon. Jesus preached very long sermons. It it was not, you don't laugh, I can't hear you laughing. Um, I can't, I can't, you you catch where I'm going with this. It, It was known for Jesus to teach for so long that people would start to starve. They would get hungry. And Jesus would say, they've come a long way to hear me. They've got nothing to eat. And he sends his disciples out to go get food lest they get faint trying to go back home. He'd teach so long, people would start to starve. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount is is more a summary probably or, or a distillation of this really long sermon that Jesus would teach. And so he sat up there for those that were listening and he began to teach. And he started by teaching on the nature of true blessing. And he went to what we looked at last week, what it means to be salt in the places that he sends his disciples. He began to instruct those who were listening on the authority of God's word. He talked to them about having a righteousness that surpassed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. He began to speak to them about what it is to pray, how to steward resources, how to deal with worry, how to handle judgmentalism. And then he summed up his teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This is where the sermon begins to end and the conclusion starts. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus summed up his teaching with what we know as the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That is how he began to sum up his sermon. And then, from Matthew chapter 7 verse 13, all the way down to verse 29, or really verse 24, the end of the parable, that's his conclusion. This tremendously long sermon had a four-part conclusion. Now, I've heard from some of you how you feel when one of us is preaching and we do one of those preacherly things where we say, okay, now's the time going to start to land the plane. And then it's another 20 minutes to land the plane. You've shared with us how you feel when we do that. Can you imagine how Jesus' hearers felt? after sitting there through this entire sermon, and then as he concludes, he's got four more points to make. Four repetitive points. Each point repeating the point before it, building and emphasizing on what he said. Well, verses 28 and 29 of Matthew chapter 7 tell us exactly how Jesus' audience felt. It said when Jesus finished these stories, he's saying The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Matthew says the people who were listening were astonished. Quite literally, they were slack-jawed. They were 
awestruck. Saints of old would say that in this moment, the hearers and the onlookers were gobsmacked at the words of Jesus. Why? Well, it's because of the authority he spoke them with. And if we're going to understand and really hear the parable that we have this morning before us, that Jesus concludes this entire sermon with, and we're going to really hear it the way that he intends for us to hear it and feel the impact and the intention that Jesus had for it, we're, we're going to have to understand this sense of authority. Those who were listening to Jesus, they, they were used to something that was called a scribal authority. That's why they talk about the authority Jesus spoke with as compared to that of the scribes. The scribes in Jesus' day, those were the theological and the religious lawyers. They were the ones who took God's word and, and then began to work out from God's word all the gray areas that people wondered about, about how this applied to their life. If this is what God said to do, well, how do I do that in this situation? They were the ones who would try to create all the space and, and it really, in essence, all of the loopholes for how God's people were to obey in light of God's law. There's a, there's a 44 volume collection of this writing. It's called the Talmud. And these scribes would go and study God's law and they would study the teaching of other rabbis and they would build case law about God's law that would get, begin to direct God's people on how to apply it. And the authority that they wrote all of that law with was based on the teachings of all the rabbis who had come before them. In fact, this Talmud is, is, is like 70% quotes of rabbis. This is what this guy said. This is what this guy said. This is what this guy said. Therefore, this is how we're going to interpret so that you can go and live in light of it. They were, they were used to this kind of scribal authority that derived its authority from the teachings of, of other people. But here, in, in this Sermon on the Mount, go back and look at it through the week, Jesus will say over and over again, you've heard it said, and he quotes God's word. But I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. I mean, only God can speak that way. And in this entirely long sermon that Jesus has been teaching over and over and over again, Jesus has been clarifying and emphasizing for those who would listen his deity, his uniqueness, the very fact of who he is. This authority that, that so gobsmacked everyone who was sitting there and listening. This authority is a source authority. In fact, if you just consider the, the word authority itself, it, it comes from the root word for author. I, I mean, I, I know you, some of you went to art school and they told you certain things in art foundations, but it's really only the author who gets to decide what the intended meaning for something they create really is. The one who writes a contract, it's the author of that thing who can tell you what it was really meant. The one who writes the story, it's the author of that story that can tell you what was really intended and what was really meant. Jesus has been communicating for those who would listen that he is the source authority. He is the place where meaning and truth and reality is found. Everyone else they were accustomed to taught on the basis of someone else's authority. But Jesus said, these are my words. In fact, as we get closer to our parable this morning, twice, Jesus says in verses 24 and in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine. Those who were listening to Jesus could tell that these words came from a place that mattered this morning, it's imperative that you understand, even as we hear a story being told, a story centuries old, we are hearing the very words of God. They carry a distinct and unique authority, and we will be wise to listen. In fact, listening to Jesus is the essential beginning point to a life that is enduring and flourishing, a life that he is beginning to drive the point home with in this parable. But it starts by recognizing that a wise and enduring life starts by listening to Jesus. And so we've got to reckon in our own hearts and reckon with our own lives the, the way in which we hear Jesus. We've got to ask ourselves, have we been more formed and shaped by the wisdom of this world because we're not really informed with or familiar with what God says to us in his word? 
We've got to consider the nature of the voices that we're taking in and allowing our hearts to hear as ultimately authoritative. Let me say it this way. Tim Keller was interviewed in the Atlantic Magazine, and it's a wonderful interview. You can go Google it and go read it. It's available. You don't have to have a subscription. And in that article, he said something profound. He always says something profound, but he said something profound. He, Keller said this in the article. Most Christians are just nowhere nearly as deeply immersed in the scripture and in theology as they are in their respective social media bubbles and news feed bubbles. To be honest, he said, I think the entire woke evangelical church is just much more influenced by MSNBC and liberal Twitter. The conservative Christian church is just much, is much more influenced by Fox News and their particular loops. And they're both living in those things eight to 10 hours a day. Yet they go to church once a week. And they're simply just not immersed in the kind of biblical theological study that would allow a human heart to nuance that kind of stuff. Our world has just literally thrown nuance out the window. But why pay more attention to Jesus' words than all these other words that we immerse ourselves in? Well, it's because he is the uncreated first word. He is the word who, by his word, spoke everything into existence. He is the source authority given the life and truth of God. He is the word, and his word is unlike any other. The question that he's bringing his original hearers to, and he's bringing us to along with them, is will we listen to his voice? Like any good preacher, ultimately Jesus is driving his crowd toward decision. That's where the sermon is going. And so as he brought the sermon to a close, after giving the golden rule, he brings it to a close with a bang. The way Jesus closes this sermon, even if it's long, no preaching book would ever teach you to end a sermon the way that Jesus is going to end this sermon. No preaching book would tell you to preach as long as Jesus. In fact, they all tell you Jesus preached short sermons, which really wasn't true. Again, I'm reinforcing my own long-windedness here, but the way he ends this sermon is, is unlike anything anyone would ever encourage you to do. Again, we're, we're taking the scenic route to the parable because we need to understand the intent and the thrust behind it. As he begins to bring this sermon to a close, he, he does it with four repetitive points, one of which our parable is just part of. In verses 13 and 14, he speaks to the crowds about two paths that they can take in their life, the wide and the narrow. One leads to destruction and one to life. Jesus will tell them the wide path, it's, it's an easy path and it's a crowded path. There are a lot of people on it and the more crowded it gets, the wider it gets, the more space there is for you. The easy path and the broad path, it's it's a path that doesn't require sacrifice on your part. But the narrow path, Jesus says, in fact, the word he uses, you can go study it this week, the word he uses for narrow there finds its root in the same word for persecution. The narrow path, it's gonna rub you. It's going to be difficult. It's going to cost you. It's going to require, as he will teach his disciples, that you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to sacrifice you're going to have to submit to one another. There's two paths that you can walk along as you hear my words. A wide path that will lead to destruction, it's easy. Or a narrow path, and few are on that one. But then as he begins to bring that to a close, he reinforces the same point in verses 15 through 20, and he talks about two trees. He begins to warn them to be on guard against those around you who would lead you down the wrong path. There are going to be people who sound like people who are speaking in the wisdom of God, but who are trying to lead you down the broad and easy way. Be on guard for those people. Be on guard for those who would try to make the broad path Jesus' path. He calls them false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. They can look a lot like the rest of us. In fact, they can have more theological degrees than most of us. They can have more outward success in things than most of us. 
And yet they still remain wolves. And they'll deny what Jesus has said about these paths. They'll make the broad path so alluring and, and so desirable that we'll begin to flock to it like moths to a flame. And then Jesus does something every preaching book tells you never to do. All your English teachers have told you this since grammar school. He mixes metaphors. So it's okay to mix metaphors. Jesus did it. He gives you permission to do it. How are you going to be able to discern these people that are trying to lead you down the wrong path? Well, you'll know them by their fruit. You can disguise a wolf, but you can't disguise a tree. Just give it some time. See what grows on it. What does the character of their life demonstrate? Be on guard for those who would want to tell you Jesus' way is the easy way. And then in verses 21 through 23, he reinforces the same thing in a different way over again. I mean, this is his conclusion. And he talks about two particular pleas. These are verses we all try to avoid at some point, but you need to hear them in their context. They're actually loving words. We'll see in a bit. He said, some are going to stand before him and say, what about me? They're going to have taken the broad and the easy way, wearing their Jesus t-shirt, holding their Jesus signs all the way down. And a day is going to come where they're going to say, what about me? And their profession is orthodox and passionate. Lord, Lord, King, Messiah, they're calling him. Twice emphasizing its earnestness and its passion. It's going to sound right, it's going to sound good, and it's going to be emotional. And when Jesus says, I I will declare, depart from me, that that word declare, it's the same word translated in other places in the New Testament as confession. It's kind of a little double entendre he's got there. You're confessing me as Lord. You're confessing me as the one you follow. Well, here's my confession. I I didn't really know you. I, I didn't really know you. you you talked a big game you were super busy but who were you busy for why were you so busy what were you trying to achieve you never really looked like someone who enjoyed me in fact jesus is going to teach later on to his disciples if you if you love me If you love me, if you know me, if you enjoy me, if you love me, if you treasure me, you'll keep my commands. You never seemed to live as someone who said that I was your joy. And it's there on the heels of that that we get to this final parable and how he actually closes the sermon, the story of these two houses. Verses 24 through 27. And let me just say this. It is really one of the clearest parables that Jesus gives. You don't need an engineering degree to understand it. You don't need to be in construction or have experience with that to get it. Everyone understands it stood the test of history. The foundation of a structure always determines the security of the structure. It's always been that way. Even as building materials and building styles and architectural trends have changed over the centuries, that has never changed. You get the foundation wrong, there is no long-term anchoring or integrity for the structure. And as he brings this kingdom sermon to a close, he's bringing into focus for the ears and the hearts of those who would hear him and urging to look beneath the surface to see what's under the house. To look beneath the surface. To examine the foundations of your own heart. Because ultimately, as as pretty as things look on the outside, that's the most important thing about you. Jesus, he, he does something he doesn't always do with these stories. He interprets the story for us. Again, it's not complex. Both the wise and the foolish builders, they both hear Jesus' words, he said, and what differentiates them is what they do with them, right? So Jesus tells us in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Wisdom hears Jesus' words, 
and as we'll see in just a minute, treasures Jesus' words and out of joy and trust obeys Jesus' words. Verse 26 says, everyone who hears these words of mine, so again, you're hearing the same words. Same words, not a different message. Same words. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Foolishness hears Jesus' words, may even hear them as good words, may even hear them as morally superior words. Foolishness hears his words and ignores them. Not a complicated story to understand. But the message that Jesus is beginning to drive home for those who would have ears to hear him is that he will either be your treasure or you will try to use him as a tool in your life. He will either be your treasure or you will try to use him as a means to your end. So you've got to hear this story not separated from everything he just said. This story is on the heels of the warning of those who are going to say, Lord, Lord. Those who are going to profess the right things, they're going to do it passionately. They're going to be doing it emotionally. They probably even convince themselves that they actually believe the things they're saying. Everything on the outside looks good and it looks right, but in the end, they didn't know him. They didn't enjoy him. In fact, he didn't say, you didn't know me. He said, I didn't know you. You've got to hear this story flowing out of that one. Nothing differentiates these houses but the foundation. Both of them are hearing the same words. Both of them are probably doing the same things. Both of them are probably posting the same quotes on their Facebook pages. Both of them probably own every single version of the Bible, the same ones. But for one, Jesus is a means to an end. But for the other, Jesus is everything. How do you know the difference? Well, the wise man who had Jesus as his treasure, we know he had Jesus as his treasure because he heard the words of Jesus and obeyed. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. John 14, 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14, 24, the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. John 15, 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You see, it's in our obedience to Jesus that we demonstrate our love for Jesus. It's in our trusting of Jesus' words for our life that we prove ourselves to be friends with him. And we demonstrate that his love and the Father's love rests on us, that we enjoy him. See, when you and I actually treasure Jesus as everything, then we receive his words, we hear his words, and we receive his words as authoritative We receive his words as the source and the way of life and joy. When we treasure him, when he is everything, we allow his words to shape the way we live. You gotta be very careful as you're reading through this story. I don't wanna belabor the point, but in no way is Jesus trying to intimate that our obedience is what earns our salvation or our security. In fact, as easy as it is, and as often and not necessarily wrong as it is to teach the passage this way, this passage really isn't even about trusting Jesus in salvation, leaning into and building on justification and righteousness. It's about what it looks like for those who really do trust him and treasure him to then respond to his words. He's not saying if you obey me, then you can know that you're saved. No, we understand that forgiveness and acceptance come only by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We understand that. Jesus talks about that in other places, but right here he's talking about something else. He's talking about what that faith in him produces. What it looks like when our hearts really treasure him as 
everything. Here's the thing we've got to be honest about. Obedience is difficult and obedience is costly. You get a sense of it when you just think about the two people he contrasted in the story. Building a house and establishing the foundation on bedrock, it's, it's far more costly, it's far more difficult, it's far more time-consuming than building your house on sand. Building your house on sand was faster, it was cheaper, it could have been more expedient. And don't write that guy off. No one builds a house expecting it to fall. They both built a house on a foundation. One was good, one was bad. I mean, who knows? The guy, we don't get the idea, we don't get the details, it's just a parable, but the guy building the house on the sand, it might have had the perfect view, it might have had the biggest yard for his kids, we don't know how long he was in the house before the storm came, don't write him off. Both had foundations, but laying the foundation on the bedrock, getting to the bedrock, anchoring in the bedrock, it's, it's harder. It's more time-consuming, and it's costly. Which is why, as you read it in the context, you begin to see the flow, the, the wider path, the easier path, the broader path. It's, it's easier than the narrow path. Plenty of voices are going to be chanting Jesus' name marching down the broad path. It's easier, it's more expedient. But in the end, it doesn't lead to life. You see, it's the faith-filled receiving of Jesus' words and applying them to your life that is building your house on the bedrock. It's allowing Jesus to shape more than just your statements and professions of faith. It's allowing him to shape your very life. To treasure Jesus in this way is to anchor your hopes and your choices and your beliefs and your view of the world on the truth of who he is and what he has accomplished because you treasure him. And to you, his words are becoming increasingly sweet, increasingly wise, increasingly trustworthy. But it's costly. But when you treasure him, you realize, like Paul, that he's worth it. For me to live is Christ, Paul said. I count everything as loss. Everything is loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen to Paul. He's, he's not, don't get it in your mind. Don't, don't just think in your mind, okay, if I get in this situation where I end up having to lose my house or I lose my job. Paul's talking about all things. Your reputation. Your position. Maybe relationships that you have. These are part of the all things. When Christ is your life, when Christ is your treasure, when Christ is everything to you, not simply a means to your end, then losing anything, the perception that other people have about you, when he is your everything and you obey him as the author and the source of life, losing everything, even your reputation, losing everything, it might be a job, losing everything, it might be a friendship, losing everything ultimately becomes gain. To lose anything out of treasuring Jesus and following him in obedience is ultimately gain. But if he's not everything to you, if you're trying to build on these other things, yea, Jesus, you've got all the right things, the fish on the car, the shirts, the mugs, the whole thing, but the foundation of your life is not built upon treasuring him and following him where he leads you, maybe it's built on those things you're so afraid of losing, the reputation, the position, the relationships, the thought of losing them will be tragic to you. And so you fear it and you avoid it at every cost. So all of a sudden those voices that are telling us the broader path is the path to life in Christ, they they sound a lot better, 
because I don't stand to lose as much over here. The justifying of ignoring Jesus' words to us becomes much easier to our hearts. We find ourselves being willing to settle for building our lives on sand. But here's the thing that Jesus said in the story. We can't miss it. He's going to make clear what it is we're building on. Storms are going to make clear what it is we're building the foundation of our lives on. Twice, verses 25 and 27, Jesus, is, Jesus says, the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Same storm, same winds, same rain, same flood. Triple threat. One didn't fall because it was secured to the bedrock. That which has stood the test of time, that which is stronger and more stable than the structure itself, and predictably, the other toppled. In fact, Jesus said, great was its fall. That's a common phrase for public disaster. It didn't fall in silence. It didn't fall in private. Everyone saw its destruction. Everyone witnessed its toppling. Now, in the direct context of what Jesus is saying, he's closing his sermon with a warning, a a weather report of sorts. And the storm he's forecasting is the day of judgment. On that day of his return, the foundations which we have built our lives upon are going to be exposed. The what for, the why, the for who, all the activity, all the confessions, all the professions, all the media campaigns, all the stuff, it's all going to get exposed. We can see what it looks like on the outside, but underneath, we're going to find out about the foundation. And I need you to hear this. This is such a gracious word from Jesus. When he talks about judgment and the storms that are going to come, You've got to understand, this is a word of love. It's a word of grace. Let me give you an example, and then an illustration, try to clarify it so that you hear it the right way. If I were to talk about Jonathan Edwards and his most famous sermon, you'd say what? What? Sinners in the hand of an angry God, right? No one talks about remembering Jonathan Edwards as someone that even secular historians say is the greatest mind that ever lived on this continent. Everyone talks about sinners in the hand of an angry God. But you know what no one tells you about that sermon? It was one of the longest sermons ever was ever recorded to preach because he was crying so hard through it he couldn't finish it. Because he was thinking about those he was talking to. Let me ask you this. What kind of father would I be if I turned on the TV at night and saw the weather report and a tornado was ripping through Richmond? We've been through that before, even in the last decade. What if I turned on the TV and I saw the tornado report and I saw that it was dangerous, it was close to where we lived? And so I went down to the lowest spot in my house, I curled up the way I'm supposed to, and I left my kids sleeping in their beds. Is that loving at all? What kind of father would I be to respond to an impending reality like that? Friends, this is a word of kindness and a word of grace. This warning is a gift to us by Jesus. Even to this day, we love weather reports because we see the weather report at the beginning of the day and we change our plans. Well, Jesus is giving those who would hear him the most accurate weather report in all of history. A day is going to come and the why and the for who of all of our profession and all of our work is going to be exposed. And a wise man is one who believes this report. Even though you can't see the storm clouds brewing yet, you believe it because you have faith in its messenger. And he's giving us a word of grace and a word of mercy, allowing us even now to check the foundations. I'll be honest, his immediate context is talking about the day to come, but in his kindness and grace, he allows the storms in our life even now to give us moments to reveal what we're building on. I'll never forget after that little 
earthquake that we had probably, was it seven years ago, eight years ago? It was the day we bought this building. Do you remember that, Ray? We were sitting at lunch uh, at Legends after we just bought this building at auction, celebrating, and the earthquake happened. And I thought, well, there went the building. It's 100 years old. Like, you know, we just bought this thing and probably fell. But you know what did happen? The back of my house started cracking. Deep cracks started showing in the brick in the back of my house. That storm allowed us to get underneath a problem that had been brewing for a long time that you couldn't see. The storm allowed us and even drove us in that moment to go check the nature, the substance, the the well-being, the security, the foundation of our house. Friends, Jesus, even now, even in the days we're in right now, the storms that we find ourselves in as as a culture and as a church, it's, it's an opportunity. Where are the cracks in the foundation? Jesus has a lot of fans. Go, go read. He has his own Facebook and Twitter account. But what about disciples? Those who treasure him, who listen to him, who obey him, regardless of the difficulty. Even now, in the days that we're in, and I do believe the days that we're in are a gracious reckoning from God for his people an opportunity to look at what we have said compared to what we actually treasure and how we live. I mean, what faulty foundations is God kindly exposing in your heart? Just listen to him for a minute. I'm I'm not even going to go throughout the whole New Testament. Just listen to him for a minute from the sermon. I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Do you believe that? Beware, he said, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father as in heaven. Do you believe that? A wise man hears the words of Jesus and treasures them as they treasure him and obeys. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust and destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you believe that? Is that wisdom for you? Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you believe that? How about this one? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do we believe that? Would anything about the way that we live right now say that we actually treasure Jesus enough to treasure this word to us? I love how a friend of mine, a pastor in in Washington, D.C., said it this week. He said, if I have the correct theology, labor for justice, preach stirring sermons, liberate the oppressed, memorize the Bible, gain a platform, protest evil, evangelize unreached, fight heresies, call out hypocrites and win the argument, but have not love, I'm nothing. You can have all the knowledge about how to build a building, all the knowledge of engineering, but if you build your own house on sand, that knowledge is of zero value can say all the right things, labor for the right things, preach the right things, liberate the oppressed, do all the right things, but a day is going to come when the for who and the why is going to be exposed. And wisdom says, what am I building on? What am I building towards? Where is it going to take me? Wisdom asks these things. Friends, these have been some hard days. 
And if we're really honest, somewhere in our hearts, even if we haven't verbalized it, we, we've all been asking, what, what does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of these days? What is God wanting from me? Where is he taking us? How are we supposed to get there? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. What God wants for us is the security, the stability, the endurance, and the joy of being anchored in Jesus. It was Isaiah who prophesied, this is what the sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Paul would write, you and I as the church are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Peter would later write in his first letter to the church, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is Precious. What God desires for you and I, even in these days, is for you and I to have his son as precious. For you and I to treasure his son. If we want a construction that will last for this life and for eternity, Jesus is saying, you've got to build on me. Hope in me. Listen to me. The way will be hard. The way will be narrow. The way will be costly. There will be many people who try to persuade you it's not the right way. But it is the way to life. Christianity is Jesus Christ. What that means is that the life of blessing promised by Christianity is a life that has to be built on Jesus. It's why we find such joy on mornings like this when we have the opportunity to sing together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. All the things that will compete, all the paths that will compete, all the voices that will compete, all the possible building sites that will compete, they're going to be sweet. Don't be deceived, they're going to be sweet. But I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, he's given us an opportunity to examine. Can we sing that? If he's exposing cracks in the foundation, Areas in your heart, areas in your life where you hear him, you can quote him, you can teach him. It it sounds good, but you haven't treasured him to the point of being willing to actually follow him and obey him. If he's showing us those things, and I think as an individual, the work of the Holy Spirit is doing that very thing for you. I think as a collective church at large, it's a time of reckoning that God is doing for all of us. Well, what do we do? We repent. We go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you see the cracks and there's something in you that's ready to mourn over your disobedience, Jesus says you're in a good place. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4 of chapter 5 says, for they will be comforted. This entire sermon that Jesus delivers, including this conclusion, is meant to drive us back to Jesus, desperate for the kingdom and desperate for him in spite of ourselves. It's an invitation to repent to believe. The faith that's required is implied everywhere in the sermon. It's simply taking Jesus at his word. 
recognizing him for who he is. Hearing his words not just as sweet, but as authoritative. And treasuring him that we might obey him. Repent, believe, and obey. You and I are going to follow the one in whom we put our faith. And whatever it is we treasure and put our faith in, it's going to be seen. It's going to have evidence. Which is why Jesus says, as he closes his entire sermon with the story, you need to choose wisely. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word to us, your word that you have given us through Jesus on who we are dependent Lord, we know that our house is secure not through who we are and what we've done, but through who you are and and what you've done to secure us in your son. And so we ask this morning that you would settle our hearts this morning. Settle them on the reality of the decision to be made. Will we obey or will we not? Will we build our house on the rock of your son or will we build it on sand? Lord, I ask this morning that you would do by your Holy Spirit what only you can do in our hearts. You would build up your church in the truth. You would make your name known through lives, our lives lived out in front of a watching world that are built and lived on you and through you for your glory. Lord, we ask this morning that this word would speak to us in such a way that it would embolden us and at the same time humble us. Lord, may we be found faithful. We ask this in the name of the only one in whom is all authority, wisdom, righteousness, and life. In Jesus' name, amen. Redemption Hill, I, I love you. Even with masks, it's been so good for my soul to see you and gather with you this morning, even if it's only a portion. Hear this from the word of the Lord this morning. By the work of the Holy Spirit, may the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom to capture your hearts for Jesus, to comfort your hearts in Jesus, and to humble your hearts before Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to listen to other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.